Well, we're working our way through this great prayer, and as we heard, here is the Lord Jesus praying for his people. He's praying for the church, and it's great to know that we have a great mediator, great intercessor in heaven, who is all the time representing us as we find ourselves here on earth. And one of the things that we are struck by as we listen to Jesus praying is the way in which he very carefully distinguishes between his people and the world. There are those people, you notice, uh, he refers to them as the, those you gave me out of the world, verse 6. They, they are the fathers, and the father has given them to the son. And he goes on to say that he's not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. One of the things that we find throughout the Bible is a developing storyline. Two distinct societies begin to develop from the, the very beginning of time. If you go back into the remote, remote parts of Genesis, there you find the emergence of people, and they're described as those who call upon the name of the Lord, and there's another group of people who don't. They, they go their own way, they do their own thing, they build their own empires, and while they're doing that, there are those who are calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, as we read the New Testament, we find these communities sometimes described in terms of kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. At other times, they're described as two cities. There's the holy city, Jerusalem. And there's the great city, Babylon, that you read about in the book of Revelation. Each of these communities, kingdoms, cities, represent different values, different allegiances, and different destinies. And when we gather together on the Lord's Day on Sundays, one of our great goals, of course, is not simply to teach the Bible, but in fact, more than that, it's that we might gain a greater understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, this, this I think, is one of the most important things. If you, if you are a Christian, you want to know why you are a Christian. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? If you're not a Christian, you want to know that, the answer to that question also. So there's a question of identity that, is, uh, that needs to be unpacked. And there's a sense in which in these verses, the Lord Jesus is speaking about the identity of the believer, your identity as a, as a child of God. We sometimes find ourselves, Jesus' people sometimes find themselves with an identity crisis. Here they are on Sundays singing hymns and praying prayers and hearing sermons. And tomorrow morning, you're going to be somewhere else doing something else with other people. And as the week develops, Sunday will recede from your mind and your memory more quickly than the preacher likes to think. Uh, what, what even he was preaching on recedes from the mind and the memory. In fact, if you ask the preacher on Wednesday what he preached about on Sunday, he probably will have forgotten as well. Uh, that's the reality. And then as, we are, as we're enmeshed in the everyday of our lives, sometimes we find it hard to come to terms with what it means to be a Christian in the world. Now, you can see that the Lord Jesus helps us with, 
working out our identity in, in these verses. If, again, if we just glance over these verses we've read, for example, we learn that first of all we belong to God. They were yours, Jesus says. Yours they were. They belong to God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that I can say, I belong to God. My home is there in God. My identity is in that I know the God who made the universe out of nothing in an instant of time. Everything that we see made by him, all that exists, from the smallest, tiniest atom to the greatest galaxy. Now, this God can use. He can use a pagan king like Cyrus and even call him his anointed one, his Messiah, because he has a job for Cyrus to do, even though Cyrus did not believe in him. Nonetheless, Cyrus, Cyrus can be his instrument in the world. And when we read that these people are yours, notice in verse 6, they're the people whom God has given to Jesus out of the world. In other words, just as uh, little children have many toys in their, toy, in their bedroom, perhaps, but when they go up, they invariably look for one toy, perhaps, one, one particular toy. They're going to bed at night, and they've got all kinds of soft toys, but there is one particular. And I think of one little boy, his monkey, actually, uh, and it's monkey that he takes to bed with him at night, and uh, Samuel will not settle until we find monkey, who has this remarkable uh, ability to disappear and to hide from Samuel, especially at bedtime, uh, thus engaging the entire family in the process of finding monkey because without monkey, sleep would be an absolute impossibility. So they have a, their favorite toy. And out of everybody in the world, we, we discover that God has his own people that he specially loves. Now, he, he doesn't love them because they're better than others. He doesn't love them because they're more lovable than others. He doesn't love them because they're lovelier than others. He loves them because he loves them. And they're his own people. And he possesses them in a special way. And this possession by God of us anchors our Christian identity not in the slight whim of a moment, not just because one day somewhere I prayed a prayer or because somehow or other I was brought up in a Christian home or, or whatever it might be, but it anchors my identity in a decision, in an act of loving, a choice to love me that was made before there even was a creation, far less before there was even the thought of me. That God, by His grace, knew everything, planned everything. My DNA, my relatives going back, obviously, to the kings of Scotland, uh, as you imagined. And, and all, all of these circumstances that led to what I am today, all of this planned and purposed by God. Imagine that before the foundation of the world. Our identity, our identity begins with the, no, the knowledge of God, and not only that, but the fact that we have been given to Jesus, that God the Father has given us to Jesus 
as his love gift. That was always his plan. In fact, going back to the, we, we looked some weeks ago at the, uh, the, the Latin is the Pactum Salutis, the Pact of Salvation, or the Covenant of Redemption, the various ways of describing it. And really it's, a, it's an event that takes place in eternity where God wills, uh, God who is one being, of course, wills one will, that he will manage that one will in this way, that the Father will act as the leader and will choose people, and he will choose them in order that he might give them to his Son who undertakes to act on their behalf and to obey the law of God and to be, first of all, become human, to obey the law of God, to die for them, and so on. And his reward will be these people whom God has chosen and promised to him. That's why in this prayer we find Jesus saying to his Father, I've done, I've accomplished all that you gave me to do. And so I've come to you, Father, for those people that you promised me. That's the joy that was set before Jesus. He went to the cross with this joy that he would have these people for himself, that they would be his and his forever. So we belong to God and we are given to Jesus. And then the third thing about the Christian is that they do not belong to the world. Do you notice that? He makes this great distinction about these people. That not only have they been given to Jesus, but they do not belong to the world. Now, there's a number of things that are said here that I just want to to show to you. First of all, in verse 11, that they are still in the world, but they do not belong to the world, and the world hates them. We've heard this language again and again in the previous chapters. They are in the world. They don't belong to the world. The world hates them. Jesus has overcome the world and a whole series of those kinds of comments. Now, this is a theme that you find again and again in Scripture. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, it describes what we once were. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And before you become a Christian, that's the way you are. And he goes on to say it like this. Those trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, that is the devil, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he describes the world as characterized by disobedience as being malleable, that is, being influenced by, being molded by the prince of the power of the air, that is, the devil, and having a course, that is, a direction, a movement, a trajectory, the world. Now, he's not saying that absolutely everything in the world is wrong. How how do we define the word world in the way it's used here? We could define it in terms of society or culture. The ways that people have, the ways we have naturally with God excluded. Subtract God from society, from culture, from values, from life, and you have the world. And there is a course to the world. 
when you're in the world, you're following the course of the world. It is, it is a great stream of humanity going in a particular direction that is the opposite direction from going in God's direction. And by nature, we are caught up in that stream of humanity, and we're going in that direction. We find a similar comment made by James in James chapter 4, where he talks about the world and the, the influence of the world. And he says this, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's a very in-your-face statement. In what sense is friendship with the world this kind of hostility or enmity towards God? We struggle with this because our friends, the people we work with, perhaps even members of our own family, perhaps even a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, don't belong to Jesus. And therefore, in terms of the categorization that Jesus is using here, they belong to the world. Is friendship with them enmity with God? No. In fact, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul particularly, makes it very clear that when he says we're to separate from uh, disobedient believers, he, he's talking about church discipline in Corinthians, he says, when I say separate from the ungodly person, I'm not talking about the ungodly person in the world. I'm talking about the ungodly person in the church, the person who says they're a Christian, who professes to be a Christian, but in fact acts in a way that is obviously not Christian. He says, separate from them until they see sense, come to repentance, and come back and seek to be restored to the church family. But I don't want you, he says, to separate from your friends in the world. They need you. They need your friendship. They need your companionship. They need your light, the truth that you know. They need that truth, if ever they come to know the truth for themselves. So what does it mean, friendship with the world is enmity with God? Well, it's not talking about your friends, and it's not talking about you being friendly with your friends. It's talking about the system, the world system, the world system that excludes God, that has explanations for everything that's going on with God excluded, that has values with God excluded. That's the world system. And the world is pressing you into its mold. That's why the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans says, don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't let it shape you. Don't let it shape the direction of your life. Don't let it dominate your thinking. Now, worldliness has sometimes been trivialized by Christian people uh, because we find it easier, I think, to deal with what we do about the world and worldliness if we trivialize it. So, for example, there was a time in which you could define worldliness like this. I don't drink or smoke or chew or go around with girls that do. Uh, I think the chewing was chewing tobacco, by the way, at the time. 
When I was growing up, worldliness was defined as going dancing, drinking alcohol, or going to movies. I always remember the first time I went to the movies on my own, secretively. My mother told me, would you like to be found in the movies when Jesus returns? No pressure. And I remember coming out of that movie theater and breathing a sigh of relief that Jesus hadn't come back <laughs> while I was there. And I'm not kidding. Uh, when when uh, I first asked Christine out, I asked her to go to a movie with me, and we went in disguise because we were living in Northern Ireland at the time, and Northern Ireland Christians did not go to the movies. Now, I, I tell you that because what those things were means, they were means Oh, there's another one, by the way. Uh, the, the, there was a previous pastor in the church I was in in, in London, and uh, he really had this view that women wearing lipstick was the ultimate in worldliness. One lady was telling me this, an, old, an elderly lady in the church was telling me about this previous minister, and she said they used to have these, these gatherings of young people in, in the manse in the church, in the minister's house, and... Uh, one night, he whispered to her, there are a lot of ungodly lips here this evening. <laughs> well, I have a particular attraction for ungodly lips, so keep them coming. <laughs> but anyway, the point that I'm making, of course, is that in trivializing what the world is, we make it easier, don't we? I mean, if you, if you just got a hit list like that and you tick them off and you say, well, I don't do these things, that's easier than the tough the tough work of thinking through the implications of the world's ideas, the world's philosophy, the world's way of thinking and behaving and acting. That's a far harder thing to do. These other things are trivial. Frankly, they're just, they're up to you as to whether you do these things or not. None of them is sinful. None of them is banned in the Ten Commandments. There's enough out there that breaks the Ten Commandments without us making more commandments in here for people that are irrelevant. It's those things in the world that the Apostle John describes in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 when he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, uh, that kind of speaks for itself, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the desires of the flesh, I suppose, are the carnal elements of, of the world, what it, what it offers that is there in the, the magazines and on your computer and on television and all around you in society, those things. The desires of the eyes, is that the coveting of wanting the things that you don't have, the desire for more, whatever your eye sees you want, you desire it in that sense. The pride of life, an arrogance of spirit, uh, of birth, your education, your background, your social standing. If this were England, I would add your accent, because your accent defines you there. Any of those things, that's the spirit of the world. The world's values, the world's ideas. And, and the world, as I said, 
a system. It's an organized society. And you know this idea of the mob. A mob is more dangerous than an isolated individual. An isolated individual being angry is one thing. You put a lot of people together and they're angry, and you have a mob, and you have the potential for greater evil. And what the world is is the amalgamation of people, an amalgamation of people who do not know God, do not love God, feel no responsibility under God. And therefore, what the world can get up to in terms of its social sense, its cultural sense, is far greater evil than what an individual on their own may be involved with. And what the Apostle John tells us is that the world lies in the arms of the evil one. That the evil one, Satan, is able to manipulate and mold the world in any which way it chooses. And Jesus' people live in that world. And Jesus' people do not belong to that world. Already they do not belong to that world. That's what Jesus says. You've taken them out of the world. You've given them to me. They are not of the world. They're in it, but they're not of the world. They do not identify with it. Jesus told the story, the parable, of a broad road and a narrow road. The broad road, he said, leads to destruction. Everybody's going there. It's a wide open space, a nice broad street. You can... You can Join everyone else in going down that street because they're all going in the same direction and they're all heading to destruction. And then there's this little narrow road. It seems narrow. It seems confined and restricted. But it leads to life in the end. So as we think about this business of living in the world and not being of the world, what is it that makes us distinct I think we learn here from these verses in uh, John 17 what makes us distinct. What, make, what makes, st- makes us to stand out in verse 6 is that we have the name of God. We know who He is. Jesus has revealed that to us. We have believed it. We've come to see it for ourselves. Not only that, but we have His words, verse 8. The words that you gave me, we have the Word of God. The Word of God guides us. It's a light to our uh, uh, feet and a, and a light guide to our path. It's, it's what we need for, for life and godliness. The Word of God makes us strong, helps us to see our way through the, the fog of worldly thinking. And not only that, we have the Savior's prayers. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. We have the Savior's prayers. We know God. We have His name. He's given it to us. We have the Word of God. It's a guide to our feet and a lamp to our path. And above all, we have the Savior's prayers. What will keep you from falling? The Savior's prayers. What will keep you on the straight and narrow road? The Savior's prayers. Not anybody's prayer, but the Savior's prayer which is always effective. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Always, day, night, 
in all circumstances. He's there making intercession for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take your word this evening and comfort our hearts by it as we go out tomorrow again to to live in the world, to rub shoulders with our friends and colleagues who don't know you. Help us to distinguish between our relationship with them and friendship with the world as an idea, a system, a movement. Help us, Lord, we pray, to love them and hate the world. Help us to care for them and hate the world. Help us when we have the opportunity to speak of you to them and hate the world so that you would lead us to that everlasting life that you have placed before us. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.